Everybody bring a Bible tonight. Well, if not, we got a screen for you. We don't have a screen for you. You will have to listen. I will read. And we all speak English, so it'll be okay. I'll read it to you. Uh, you can always kind of look over somebody else's shoulder, depending on how close you are with them. Uh, some people don't like that, but uh, we're good sharers. If you can't share the word with the person next to you, how are you going to share the word with the person in the mall? Right? <laughs> All right, let's go to the book of Acts. If you're uh, not normally a, a Wednesday night churchgoer, then I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you what we've been doing the last few weeks. We've been going through the book of Acts and um, going verse by verse and seeing what God did in the early church. Uh, sometimes we view the early church as a group of uh, superhumans, some sort of mutants that set the world on fire. Sometimes we think that what God did there, he'll never do again, but that's just not biblical. There's nothing in the word that says all this stuff is going to stop happening. It might happen differently. It might happen in a, in a new way. But the Bible says that in the last days, the former rain and the latter rain will come together. It doesn't say in the last days, I'll simmer it down a little bit. In the last days, I'll, I'll take it easy. If anything, in the last days, things get ramped up. Now, we know we're in the last days, not only because we learn to look at the signs that Jesus told us, look around when these things are happening. You know you're in the last days. Not only that, but Peter says, when he preaches this message we're about to read about in the day of Pentecost, he right there says this is the beginning of some of those things that God talked about about the last days. And as they wrote their letters, as Paul wrote some of his letters, Peter wrote some of his letters, John, they talk about these are the last days right now, even then starting out the last days. If those are the last days, um, I don't think there was a reset point where it was like, you know, you, all of a sudden we went from being the last days to the, to the first days again. If it was the last days then, it's the super last days now, right? We've come into a time of history um, where things don't get less powerful, where things don't get less exciting, where they should be more exciting. The scripture tells us many things about the last days. It tells us in the last days there'll be mockers following after their own lusts. Do you know what that means? When we talk about mockers following after their own lusts, that's not just someone who's doing the wrong thing. There's somebody who does what they want to do, no matter what God said to do, they'll do what they want to do. But at the same time they're doing it, they're mocking you for doing it differently. They're mocking the word of God. They're mocking the believers. They're mocking God himself. He says, in those times, you keep yourself in the love of God. And he tells you how to reach out and have mercy on those who are doubting, how to snatch those that are in the fire, how to even be careful with some who are so far into it. He says, make sure you don't get that on you. But at the same time, you have that gift of salvation to bring to them. When we read about this, we don't read about a church that fizzles out. I've never read in the Bible and thought, wow, the church really goes out with a whimper. You see a church that is triumphant. You see a church whose head is Christ. If Christ is not the head of the church, the church is not a church at all. How many of you know that a building is not the church? Right. Scripture says that very clearly. It says the, the building is not the church. It says you are the church. The Bible says you, plural, are a temple of the living God. Then he says you, singular, are a temple for the Holy Spirit. 
The scripture says that we are living stones which build a house in which high priests offer sacrifices to God made acceptable through Jesus Christ. And so all through the Bible, we are his church, the fullness, as we said last week. It says the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the cause. That's the purpose of the church is to, is to be the fullness of him who fills all. In other words, Jesus is filling the earth through his church. And if we're not prepared to be that representation of Jesus, we don't know what it means to be the church. The church does not mean the gathering of people on Sunday. The church means the called out gathering of those who are called by the name of the Lord. Those who call on his name, those who call him Lord, we're the church. We're filled with his spirit. And we're going to read about that today in Acts chapter 2. We, uh, we left off with Jesus giving them instructions. And then afterwards they were left alone trying to figure out how it's all going to work. And Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses both here in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. With those words, he went up to heaven. The wonderful thing about that is, he said, I can't send you the Holy Spirit until I ascend. As long as I'm here with you. Jesus says something dramatic to the disciples in the Gospels. He says, it's good for you if I go away. And I've said this before, but let's, let's hit this again in our own hearts how much do you believe that? Do you really believe it was better for all of us that Jesus wasn't physically walking the earth? Think about how much you'd believe that if Jesus were the pastor of this church. And he said, I'm going away and it'll be good for all of you if I go away. How many of us would buy that? How many of us would say, yeah, that's a good idea? Jesus says to his disciples, it will be better if I'm not physically here. You know why that's hard for us to understand? Because we need something to see. We need to touch something. We, we need to, you know, the disciples followed Jesus around. And as long as he was with them, as we sang in that song, because you're with me, I do not fear. As long as Jesus was with them, they're good. If he says, let's go across the sea, he's in the boat. Now, they might have to wake him up while the sea is storming, but at least he's in the boat. We'll survive this. They go over to Decapolis. A demon-possessed man comes out. They're not afraid because Jesus is here. And the sea and the wind obeys him. The demons obey him. Nothing can, can hurt us while we're with him. Even when he sent them out two by two, they knew they could run back home and tell Jesus that he was there praying for them, that he was there interceding for them. And when they went back, they could tell him the good news. But when he goes up to the Father and he leaves the planet, he says, that's going to be good for you. Because when I go up, I send the Holy Spirit down. And the Holy Spirit's not going to be in one of you. He's going to be in all of you. As he begins to describe the relationship between them and the Holy Spirit, he sets up how he's going to lead the church. Remember we read at the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke writes to Theophilus, he says, he says in this my, he, he talks about the book of Luke. He says, in my first account, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach during his time on the earth. And then he starts writing about what Jesus continued to do. He says, from the time that Jesus was born to the time he was resurrected, that was the beginning of what he was going to do. 
See, too many of us think that was all that Jesus did. But Jesus, that was the beginning. And as he, as he walked the earth, he ministered. He showed them what God was like. He, he trained up 12 disciples. He did all of these things. He, he did the most powerful thing by, by going to the cross for us and, and ending the curse and defeating sin and, and all of those things of being resurrected. But yet that was all the beginning. And the continuation of what he was going to do was through the church. And the beginning of what we see in the book of Acts is the, is the very start of our church. It's the start of it. The early church is not a different church. You know that, right? We talk about it like it's a different church. Well, that's what they did in the early church. So the early church is the same church we're in now. It's just the very beginning of it. And I believe that what Jesus did in the beginning, how he started it, is how he meant to finish it, how he meant to, for it to be all the way through. The start was not to be more glorious than the last. And he says this, as we go into Acts chapter 2, this is what happens. They've gathered together because the last thing he told them to do was to wait. He didn't tell them what to wait for. We know in hindsight that he came on the day of Pentecost. When we say Pentecost now, we generally think of this event in the book of Acts. But to them at the time, the Feast of Pentecost was something they'd been doing all their lives. It was seven weeks after Passover. In Leviticus, we see this instituted. This is what they would do. Seven weeks after the last day of Passover, they would celebrate the spring harvest. And they would give the first offerings to the Lord. And they would give a wave offering to the Lord. And they would, they would celebrate that he had done these things for them. It was also in the, the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, that the law was given. So they didn't know at the time the Holy Spirit would come on the day of Pentecost. All they know is Jesus said, wait for me in Jerusalem. Why did it have to be Jerusalem? Could it be anywhere else? Our, our headquarters is not Jerusalem, they're thinking. These are Galilee men. These are, these are women from different parts, but they are not Jerusalem people. You remember what they said only, only like a couple weeks before Jesus died. They said, as they're, as they're kind of in a safe spot, Lazarus dies. They get a report that he's actually sick, and Jesus already knows that he's dead. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. We're going to go wake him up. That sounds like a movie line. Like, that's so cool. Our friend's fallen asleep. Let's go wake him up. That's how Jesus views death. He's asleep. Let's go wake him up. And the disciples start to quiver, and they say, no, Lord. Don't, don't, no, no, no. They said, if you go down there, you're going to die. And because we said we'd stick with you, we're all going to die. Can we just not go? If he's asleep, he'll wake himself up. And Jesus said, let me tell you plainly, he's dead. Well, then more reason why we don't need to go. They got enough people to go to the funeral. We're cool. <laughs> Jesus says, no, we got to go down because this sickness will not end in death, but it'll end in the glory of God. So they don't want to go to Jerusalem because they understand. Now, Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. So like the difference between here and that 7-Eleven on Highway 17, that's about how far it is. It's too close for comfort. We do not want to go to Bethany. Bethany is right near the hotbed of where they hate us. The, the nucleus of, where, of, of, of the enemies of Jesus that wanted him killed dwelled in Jerusalem. All of the, the head religious leaders that, that insisted that this guy 
This guy can't be allowed to continue on. They were in Jerusalem, and the disciples already knew if we go down there, we're dead to toast. That's it. And it only got worse, not better, when Lazarus was risen from the dead. These guys were so hard in their hearts. You know, what about you guys? If you're, if you're saying that move is not from God, that guy's a cult leader, he's a heretic, and then you have an undeniable resurrection from the dead, you kind of take a step back and go, maybe I misjudged this. But they were so hardened in their hearts. So when Lazarus died, they said, that's it. That's it. We can't, we will not rest until, this, until Jesus is dead. And now we got to kill Lazarus too. Because he can't get up twice, can he? So they determined in their hearts that these guys had to die. We think of the triumphal entry. We think of when Jesus came into Jerusalem and everybody's going, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're waving palm branches. But as we've talked about before, the scripture says when you read through the, all the gospels and you put them together, you find out it's not Jerusalem people that come out to meet Jesus. It's his disciples, those that are following him, those that saw the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Those guys, it says, they run ahead of Jesus. And they run ahead glorifying God, telling people on the side of the road, do you know what he did? Do you know what he did? Hey, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they begin to shout as they round the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem comes into view. A loud shout raises up and they begin to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And there are pilgrims that have come to Jerusalem that know about Jesus and they join in on the fun and they start waving their palm branches and laying them on the ground for the, for his, so that his donkey, his mule doesn't even have to touch the ground. The colt that he's riding on, because he's riding on it, it's worth something. But those aren't Jerusalem folks. The Jerusalem folks say, who is this guy? And the ones who already knew who he was said, shut your disciples up. Now, let me just read something to you real quick to show you the state of the church, the future leaders of the church before the day of Pentecost, before, before Jesus spends those days with them, pumping them up, encouraging them. But even after he does that, they're still a little timid. Here's what they look like before they receive the Holy Spirit when Jesus is crucified. And he's lying, or so they think, he's lying in the grave. In John 20, Verse 19 says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, shut doesn't just mean you're like, well, of course they were shut. We always shut our doors. Who leaves the door open? He's not talking about leaving a door open. He's leave, they're talking about they've locked it up tight. These guys are holed away in a building with the doors locked. And the doors were shut. Why were they shut? Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, when they say the Jews, they're talking about the religious leaders whose headquarters is in Jerusalem. These religious leaders had enough clout that they riled up the crowd to insist that Jesus be crucified before a well-known, well-hated criminal. You guys remember the story. Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus. Pilate was the governor at the time. He didn't want this on his hands. He knew Jesus was an innocent man. And even if he had his doubts, his wife has a dream and says, you can't crucify this guy. You cannot kill this guy. He's an innocent man. But Pilate's afraid, and there's a good reason to be afraid. Governors of this area had known for a while, you do not make these people mad. 
Keep them tame. There was one time where, where a governor was coming through. He was going to come through Judea, and there was a new emperor, and he, they had these banners and flags with the emperor on there, and the Jews believed that there would be no images, no graven images, no images at all. So they didn't want images on their walls. They didn't want things. So, so when the Romans are coming through, and it's got an image of Caesar, this to them is idolatry. They're extra careful because they got in trouble with this plenty of times in the past. They had a bit of a habit of slipping into idolatry. You got, can I get off topic for a minute? You remember when uh, the Jews were, uh, were, the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and they began to grumble and complain and, and these desert snakes that the Lord had been hiding and, and keeping back from them, holding at bay, they began to mutter and complain and they, they so the Lord said, all right, you deal with your, you don't want me to, to you don't want my plan? Here, here's, here's what you get without it. And those serpents came out and began to bite them and they were poisonous, deadly poisonous. And they said, you know, they, as quickly as they changed their tune and say, oh, Moses, save us. We're sorry. We're stupid. We're idiots. Please save our lives. And Moses goes to the Lord and he says, they're stupid. They're idiots, but I love them. They're all I got. They're a bunch of knuckleheads, but they're, they're all we got. Please, can we save their lives? And the Lord says, well, put a, put a snake on a pole. Put a brass serpent on this pole and hold it up. And what they didn't know is that that symbol was to symbolize Jesus being cursed on a tree for them. It was to symbolize what would happen over millennia later, what Jesus would do. What a powerful image and as they looked on it, they were healed. But then, a little while later, and a couple hundred years later, actually, we find out in the book of Kings that they've started worshiping this thing. They, they kept it around. <laughs> and they start saying, this thing's awesome. Because they, they had a habit of, of wanting to worship things they could see, like we're talking about. They need something to see. That's why they put a calf you know, crafted a golden calf. It's easier for us to have a God we can see. So they have this thing, but hey, this came from God, so it can't be that bad. So this becomes the point. And they come up with a fancy name for it. You guys know where I'm going because you've heard this before. The Hebrew name for it is copper thing. It's translated copper thing. That's the name they've come up with this. So not only are they idolaters, but they're really crummy at idolatry. They're not even good at it. They don't even know how to market properly. So they're real cautious about this. And when the Romans come through with these images on their flags, the elders come out and they say, you can't come through our city with those flags. And the Romans said, oh, yes, we can. And they said, okay, fine. You're going to have to, and they all kneel down. They put their heads on the road. They say, you're going to have to chop all our heads off first. That's the only way this is ever going to happen, over our dead bodies. And they knew we do not want to cause these guys to rebel because they are a sleeping, you know, they're not a big nation. They're not a mighty nation, but they have their convictions. And once we tick them off religiously, there's no stopping them. 
And so Pontius Pilate realizes that this thing is not led by the political leaders, although the political leaders and the religious leaders were kind of the same thing in that area. He realizes it's not a political issue, it's a religious issue. He doesn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, but he knows he can't afford to make these guys mad. And these guys were able, so he offers up, he says, I know a way. There's, there's a tradition this time of year for Passover. We, we let one criminal go free. But instead of letting that guy that jaywalked free, you know, like, you know, just kind of a, a nice easy pardon nobody's bad with, I'm going to give him a choice between Jesus and a really, really bad man. We don't know what this guy did. Could have been a serial killer for all we know. We know that Pontius Pilate thought he tricked the Jews. Pick a really bad guy, and they're going to have to say, well, obviously, I guess we're going to have to let Jesus go. But they say, no, give us Barabbas. Let that guy go free. Somehow, these leaders have such a grip on Jerusalem that they would rather let a terrible, terrifying criminal go free in their city than let Jesus go free. Now, this is where Jesus says, wait for me. Stay here. Jesus, your Holy Spirit can be anywhere, right? Let's have a little conference. Let's have, let's have our own little first, first annual Jesus People Conference. We're going to have it over in Galilee where people like us. Mm-mm. Right in the middle of Jerusalem. Let's go rent an upper room. Hopefully no one comes looking for us. They go to the upper room and it says they begin to pray together. It says they eat together, they stay together, they don't leave that place because they don't know when he's coming. Now it makes sense to us now. Oh, wow. Do you realize how significant the day of Pentecost is? That that celebration, seven weeks, which seven being a number of perfection, that's seven weeks from the Passover, seven weeks after the Passover lamb, Jesus himself was slain for them. Now he, they receive the Holy Spirit, the first fruits. I mean, they become the first fruits of many brethren. They become the first church. Do you realize how significant it is that to the day, Hundreds of years to the day that 3,000 people were killed when the law was given because they rebelled against the Lord. The law was given. 3,000 people died that day. That hundreds of years to the exact day, 3,000 people were born again because the law killed, but the Spirit gave life. Do you realize the significance of the day? But they didn't know that. All they knew is he said, let's wait. In the city of vipers, in the city where they hate us, in the city where they crucified our king, in the city where we ran away in terror, in the city where they would like nothing better than to squash us once and for all. They gather in the upper room. Not just the disciples, but 120 people in all, men and women, gathered together in that room. And they're praying, they're seeking the Lord. They don't know what they're waiting for. All they know is that the Spirit is going to come upon them. And when he come up, comes upon them, they will receive power and they will be his witnesses. They have no idea how that's going to happen. They're just doing what Jesus said. As they wait, as they wait and they pray, everybody's smart enough not to leave. We could learn something from that. For when God is doing something, our schedule becomes his schedule. As you look through the great revivals through history, 
where God shook nations. And believe me, it's going to take a great revival for this nation to be where it needs to be in these last times. You look at those great revivals. People stayed for days. People didn't leave until they felt God was saying, you can leave. In this city, how many of us would say, all right, you have my week. You didn't book the time off. You didn't schedule for it. But there's a moment, there's something that God is doing and you know you can't leave. And you have to pick then, whose schedule do I obey? And they just stayed. They stayed in the room. Here's what happens. Let's go back to Acts 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, that's why you have to be where God tells you to be. Because you don't know when suddenly he's going to come. You notice this didn't happen and then they were all summoned to one place. They were there when the moment came. We're waiting for the moment to come and then we'll say, okay, we'll get on board. But what you need to do is you need to hear the voice of the Lord say, wait for me here and you wait because you don't know when the suddenly is going to happen because suddenly by definition is unpredictable and happens quickly. Suddenly there came from where? From heaven. Didn't come from the window. Didn't come from the door. It came from heaven. A, a noise. Like a violent rushing wind. So that's the first thing they hear. They don't feel a violent, violent rushing wind. It says the first thing that happens is they hear something. Like a violent rushing wind. You imagine it. Come on, guys. We read this story so much it becomes common to us. But picture yourself in that place. Any of you ever uh, watched the Transformations documentaries at all? Anybody? Show hands? No? A couple people. All right. Well, there, there's a documentary series about, about places in the world that were utterly changed and transformed through the power of prayer. One of those places, it was in the second documentary series, happened in the Arctic. And as, I remember watching this as a teenager with some of my uh, other friends, and we, were just, we had just got turned on to the Lord, and we were watching this, and uh, all of a sudden, they start to interview some of these Inuit people in our very nation, and in Canada. They're interviewing these Inuit people, talking about this thing that God did. And I remember just being just in awe. And I remember dad walking by going, I stayed with that lady when he went to preach there. He said, I stayed at that house. But they told the story of what God did. They said, I mean, <laughs> they've got the recording of it. Thank God for, for equipment where you can record some of this stuff. Here's what happens. Here's what happened. They were seeking the Lord. They were worshiping. They were praying. And all of a sudden, a sound like a train coming through. I imagine that was a little bit like that violent rushing wind. A train coming through, and it was loud. And you can hear it on the tape. Here's the thing. Here's what happens when we get a loud sound on the system. What do we do? Everybody turns around and looks at the sound guy. And the sound guy, who nobody notices until something goes wrong, bless their heart. I mean, how often have you gone back and said, I didn't notice it. I mean, the sound was clear. It was perfect. Thank you, sound man. No, if the music sounded great, you talk to these guys. If the preaching was good, you talk to me. Does anybody go and say, boy, I heard everything just right. Thank you, sound guy. Maybe you should. But here's what happened. They start violently unplugging stuff. Because when you can't fix it, you unplug it. 
it can't make noise if it's unplugged, right? So they're unplugging stuff, they're unplugging boards and speakers, and nothing is plugged in, and yet the tape recorder keeps going. No batteries on this thing, just keeps recording. And you hear them on the tape, you hear this, and you hear them yelling, fire, fire. And you see them, I mean, from that moment, their community was utterly changed. God met them in that place. And I, I just, I, I know this is the day of Pentecost and it's a unique occasion, but I think that they got a taste of what these guys got. And as that sound, so it was a sound that they first heard. They first hear this sound from heaven. And then here's what happens. And the best way they can describe it is like a hurricane's going through. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. It doesn't say it was actually fire. It just said it the best way they could describe it. You realize that they are doing their best to describe something that's indescribable. The best way I can describe it is like a violent rushing wind. The best way I can describe what it looked like was kind of like fire. And you see the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. He's described as fire, as water, as oil. There's, there's these things that, that aren't one in one place at any time. It's not one shape at any time. It's moving, it's fluid, it's active. And they see it on these appear on people's heads and they're not looking in the mirror. They go, oh, me too. But it says this, it's distributing itself which is the coolest thing. Because I imagine it starts on a couple and it just starts to spread on all of them. You realize the guy that wrote this was a historian. This is not a fairy tale we're reading here. This is not a different God than you know. This is not a different spirit than you know. I want you to read this kind of stuff and say, of course he did that. I'm still in awe. I'm still amazed, but I'm not surprised. That's my God. And that's the same God that moves in our church, that moves in our city, that moves in our nation. And it says it starts distributing itself, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That verse we read in John, I didn't tell you the end of it, but you might have read ahead. That Jesus appears to them after they've locked the doors and they're afraid. And he grabs them and does something so awkward that none of us men like to think about it. But he grabs them and he breathes into their mouth. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. They received something that day, but it was only a partial of what they were going to receive. Do you realize when everybody is born again, they receive the Spirit of God? But there's an infilling. There's a baptism. And baptism in the literal Greek means to dunk, to immerse, that when you come out, nothing is left that has not been touched. To be filled means there's no room for anything else. And there are two, and we'll read it in a few weeks, but there are two occasions in the book of Acts where it says the church, and it's the same group of people, twice were filled with the Holy Spirit as a group, which tells me that it's not a one-time thing. It is a continual thing. It says they were all, all of them, not just the disciples, or the apostles who are the same, the disciples became the apostles, not just the men, there might have been kids there. We don't know. But whoever was there, they all were filled. God was not respecting anybody over anybody else. Everybody who showed up got filled up. That's half the battle, showing up, guys. Showing up. Being at the prayer meeting. You don't know what God's going to do. You say, well, God starts doing something at the prayer meeting, I'm going to show up. You got to be there because it's going to suddenly happen. 
Here's what happens. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What's crazy about this is it doesn't say that they're freaked out at all. I imagine they're <laughs> just thinking, there's probably a threshold. You know, there's just a threshold. When it gets so crazy, you just stop being surprised. And they're just, this is happening. It says, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, now here's the thing. What they heard in the building was the sound of a rushing, violent rushing wind. But the sound that the people heard was not just the sound from heaven, but it was the sound from heaven that were going, was coming from the people that God had filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the sound that the believers heard was the sound from heaven, but the sound that the people heard was the sound of these Christians, these 120. That was the sound they heard. This is the thing. I realize t- tonight I don't want to get, we've talked about this a lot, and we will talk about it more in the future. Tonight I want to I think about the bigger picture here of how the church is meant. If the church came in power, the church will continue in power, and it will, it, the last days will be in great power. But you think about this. You think about what's going on. This is a picture of how it's meant to be even in our day. God is going to do something in our gatherings together. God wants to do things and fill us and encourage us and, and, and anoint us in these times together. But it is always meant, what we hear from heaven is meant to be echoed through our mouths out to the world. It starts in a room and it spreads to streets. And what Jesus said was this, I will whisper to you things, but the things I whisper to you, you will shout from the rooftops. So this is what's supposed to happen. The church and all that God does through the church is not meant to happen at services. It begins in the times we gather. It begins in your prayer meetings. It begins in your time with the Lord. But it is always meant to take you out of the building and into the streets and see what God does there. Because they heard a sound from heaven, but the people heard the sound from the other people. And this is what happens with us. You'll hear from God, but people hear from God through you. It says this. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, when the sound occurred, the crowd came together. Praise God. Isn't that awesome? It was a sound that drew them. You notice they did not draw them by saying, we're hosting a party. We don't want to freak you out. There'll be balloons. There'll be toast. Come on. What drew them was them glorifying God. What drew them was them being totally nuts, crazy for Jesus. We think what's going to draw the world is when we become, like I've said before, a PG-rated version of what they're already doing. But that's not what draws the world. What do, people, what do people need? They need him. They need him. That's what they need. That's the only solution. And whether they know, I mean, they're not seeking on their own. They don't know what to seek. But there's something in them that's crying out. I don't mean that we can't be, you speak the same language. You talk to them where they're at, just like Jesus did. He, he came into our world, became one of us. You don't have to go wear white robes, speak in Latin to them. Nobody does that. That's why I'm saying it. Some other language. You don't, you don't, go, and you, you don't go and use old King James English with them. 
But there is still a sound that draws devout people that are seeking God. It says this. When the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of you speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty things of God. Some will use this scripture and say, okay, you see, speaking in tongues is just a translation device. They say, you know, this is just God enabled them to speak in different languages. I'm going to tell you something. And this is what I believe, and you can, you can disagree with me on this. But I believe the word of God bears this out. Do you notice it never says they were speaking in these different languages? It says each of them, it says each one of them said, we each one of the, us hear them in our language. These men were speaking in a heavenly language. They were speaking in a heavenly language, but each of these people said, he doesn't say, I, I hear one of those guys. You notice they didn't say that? The Cretan didn't say to the Arab, I hear one of those guys talking in my language. He says, we each hear them in my language. And look how many languages there were. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cretans, Arabs. You know how many language groups that is? Stick 120 people there speaking all those languages. Can you pick any of it out? Will you say, praise the Lord, they're speaking my language. No, you'll be like, what in the world's going on? But it says we each, each one of us, no matter what our language is, we hear them, the group, speak in our tongue. So as they spoke in a heavenly language, the Holy Spirit translated into their language. Now, I've seen this happen firsthand. I've seen it happen in Loon Lake into, into perfect Cree to a, an old lady who did not speak a lick of English and knew the sermon, what the sermon was going to be about before the man preached it because he told her while he was worshiping God and in, 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 in praying in tongues at the beginning of the service and she wrote it down in Cree syllabics and he began to preach on that topic. And that happened two weeks in a row to two different speakers. Not only that, it happened, it happened before that when mom and dad were ministering up to the Cree people. I mean, one time dad was praying for somebody that was supernaturally healed from a chronic illness. And as, as my dad spoke Cree, he spoke good Cree. But as he, as he prayed for her, he began to minister to her in other tongues. Not for her sake, he was praying to the Lord. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, that he that speaks in tongues does not speak to men. So if you think it's just a method of translation, you've got to explain that verse to me. It says we don't, when you're speaking in tongues, you're not speaking to men, you are speaking to God. You're speaking mysteries to God, and it does, it's not for edification of others, it's for edification of yourself. But if you're going to do it in the church, you're going to grab a microphone, you're going to start speaking in tongues, you better have an interpreter, because that doesn't help anybody unless there's an interpretation for it. Does that mean if the person next to you is praying in tongues in a church service that your ears are going to melt off? No, just the same way that if Jericho starts, starts praying and worshiping God in Tagalog, it doesn't offend me, because he's not talking to me. 
Now, if he talks to me and says, I've got a word from God for you, and he tells me in Tagalog, I'm going to say, I caught two of those words. <laughs> that doesn't help me. He better interpret. Yeah. I don't want to get too far off the point. Do you see the miracle that's happening here? Yeah. Do you see that God is reversing Babel? What happened at the town of Babel? Yeah. With one language, God confused them. Yeah. By splitting the languages and they all could, what he says, if they start saying the same thing, if they start saying the same thing, nothing will be impossible for them. And so he confuses their language so they all speak different languages. And their work and their effort, it stops. And what God did when he brings a bunch of people from all different nations and, and tongues and tribes, he brings them together. Not only does he fulfill the prophecy that says, I will with one voice, they will worship Jews and Gentiles alike. With one voice, they will glorify God. Not only does he do that, but he undoes what he did at Babel. As they begin to speak in other tongues, he unites them. And with one language, they glorify glorify God. And he unites his early church with one voice. And if they say the same thing with one voice, what would be impossible for them? And as they do this, God is being glorified because it, what does it say? They are speaking of the works that he's done. And they're all hearing in their own language. And the crowd is drawn. Why is the crowd drawn? You see, glorifying God draws a crowd party doesn't draw the crowd. The party may draw a crowd, but for the wrong reasons. Might even draw the wrong people. Do I believe that the gospel's for everybody? Absolutely I do. I, I mean, bring me the worst of the worst, praise God. But I want the ones that are seeking. I want the ones that are hungry. I want everybody. But you know, here's what happened. The glorif as they glorified God, a crowd came. We've got a nice lady right here was just walking outside the church and heard the sound of people glorifying God and came in the building. That's how you got saved, isn't it? Just walking outside the church. Now, what if we spread that out there so that you didn't have to be in the neighborhood of a church to hear that sound? What if you heard that sound at the mall? What if you heard that sound somewhere outside of just where we're comfortable. And as they get out there, they begin to glorify God with one voice. And they all hear it. They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Who's saying that? It says the devout people. The devout people love the Lord. They just don't know him yet. Yeah. And they're all saying, what does this mean? They're in amazement. They're hearing God. But there's another group of people. It says here, but others. So the first group he's talking about are group from all over the world that have gathered in Jerusalem, whether they're there for the feast or they've come to live in Jerusalem. They're from different spots, or some of them are native Jews. Some of them are from everywhere else, all over the Roman Empire. They're brought together. It says these are devout men from every nation. Then it says there are others who say, and they begin mocking and say, they're full of wine. Did you know it's not the devout people that say these guys are drunk? It was the mockers. Why? Because the devout people heard what God was saying. The mockers heard a bunch of people babbling. The mockers, I mean, come on. If somebody were to get up 
and 120 people were saying the same thing in your native tongue. You wouldn't go, they're drunk. They're speaking perfect Arabic, must be drunk. That's what drunk people do. Drunk Galileans just, just start speaking French. That's just, you know, just natural. Must be drunk. Tina's drunk again. She's speaking fluent Ukrainian. Take the bottle away. She just learned another language. None of the people that heard in their own language were saying they were drunk. It was others who were not seeking the Lord, who were not devout, who were not hungry, and they heard a bunch of babblers. Now, I'm sure it, was, it didn't sound like gibberish. I'm sure it sounded like another language. They just couldn't understand it. And maybe it wasn't just what they were saying, but the way they were acting. Maybe there was some way they were kind of acting that said, these guys are drunk. And it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Not an appropriate time <laughs> to be drunk. Is there an appropriate time? No. <laughs> but 9 o'clock in the morning is like the most inappropriate time. <laughs> but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven. The cowards, they stand together. The fearful, they stand together. They don't just say, okay, good, Peter's going, Phew, that's a relief. We're going to slip back into the upper room. You preach. They took their stand with him, shoulder to shoulder, in the city where they were wanted men, in the city where they, their Lord was crucified. They stood together. We're going to talk about Peter's sermon next time we pick this up. But just as a preview, pre Peter doesn't say, hey, we've all done stupid things. <laughs> I don't want to mention it. We've made some mistakes. Things were said in the heat of the moment. Let's all just move on. Peter comes straight out and says, you crucified him. You crucified him. But he's offering you forgiveness. The gospel was preached that day with all its messy bits, with the blame placed squarely on their shoulders and then lifted by the, the offer of forgiveness. The gospel was preached. You see, that's the, gospel. the gospel brings us to a point when it is first preached, the gospel must always include the cross and the resurrection. The cross is important because it shows us why we needed a Savior. The sins of the world were on his back. You don't just simply say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That could be an important thing to say, but it's not the only thing you say. Part of being born again is knowing I needed to be born again. Part of being saved is coming to the point where I realized I needed a Savior. And the cross shows us that we needed a Savior and that he was the Savior. The story of the cross is not complete without the story of the resurrection. That it did not end in defeat or death, but it ended in life. Because the Bible says if we are crucified with Christ, we must also live with him. If we were crucified, we must also identify with his resurrection. The Bible says to not just consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. The gospel was preached that day with power. Jesus keeps his promises. If you get a moment, I'd like, if sometime this week, I'd like you to read through John 14 through 16 and read about Jesus promising the Holy Spirit. And you just watch how he fulfilled this. He kept his promise and he didn't wait too long to do it. He did it in the right and the proper time. He kept his promise. 
The church was always meant to have Jesus at the head. The church was always meant that Jesus would run the church. And he runs the church because he has given his spirit to lead the church. The church must be led by the Spirit. The Bible says in Romans 8, those that are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If we are the children of God, we must be led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is an empowering spirit. If you are shy, if you are introverted, if you don't feel like you can be this person that does that, I have good news for you. You don't have to. The Holy Spirit in you will do all of the work. But he made cowards into bold men. He made fearful men into strong men. He made women who were a little bit bolder than the men because at least they showed up at the tomb. But they still were afraid. He gave them a purpose and a place. And he united them together. The church that we see on this first day. This is really the first day of the real church, isn't it? Church wasn't the church without the Holy Spirit. So I'd say the day of Pentecost to me is the first day of the church. You can make the argument that it was when Jesus was resurrected. You can make the argument it was when he ascended, and we'd all be right. But I'd say this is one of the first days of the, the real church. Look how it starts. Unity, praising and glorifying God, power and boldness, full of the Spirit. I mean, all of these things speak to me of what the church should look like today and will and does. Let's get ready to get filled again. Continually filled. Amen. Stand with your feet to me. Stand to your feet with me. Praise God. Lord, we thank you and glorify you. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would see you for who you are. Open our ears that we would hear the sound of heaven. That we would not just hear the sound, but we would be carriers of the sound of heaven. What our ears hear, our voice will proclaim. Lord, don't let us be a group of people that just hang around waiting and waiting. But those that will wait with expectancy and when you do whatever you do, that we activate, we're ready to go. God, I realize there are people here tonight who would call themselves fearful. There are those here tonight who might say they're shy. Lord, I know that you've created some with a quiet and gentle spirit, but that in no way means that they are not also powerful and bold. Lord, for those that say, I can't picture myself doing this, fill them with your spirit, that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. They'd go out and they'd witness with power. They'd speak with power. Lord, unite our voices as you did on that day. As with one accord they sought you. As with one accord they received the Spirit. As with one accord they spoke. We are tired of being divided. Your Spirit unites. Your Spirit unites. It empowers. It gives us something to say. We're here as your witnesses. We're not here as your audience merely. But we're here as witnesses that are meant to proclaim what we see. Proclaim what we've heard. Proclaim what you've done. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you. Hey, uh, next Wednesday night, uh, we'll we'll be all together next Sunday. Next Wednesday night, my wife and I will be at a a, a participating in conference at Edmonton. I'll be um, 
partly ministering in that. And so uh, Pastor Brown is going to be speaking next Wednesday night. I believe she's got a great word. She's getting all ramped up for Africa. So I bet she's just ready to explode. So you need, when you need to be her release valve and just get some of that, get the preview of what God's doing. Amen. God bless you. We love you.